President Trump says they were, quote, cocked and loaded but didn't pull the trigger. The lead starts right now. Ten minutes away from war. Today, the president explains his decision to call off the strike on Iran and the about face, about face, seemingly only highlighting the chaos in his administration. From the fresh fish fry to the fire, 2020 Democrats flood a key early state filled with key African-American voters as the frontrunner in the race tries to shake off a racial controversy. Plus, going to the mattresses, Republicans in one state fleeing the Capitol and tell state police to come heavily armed if they want to get them. What legislation has them literally running from the law? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this Friday with breaking news in our world lead and a stunning about face by the commander in chief, President Trump, ordering a retaliatory strike against Iran for shooting down an unmanned surveillance drone yesterday. The Pentagon had targeted three different sites, but then just minutes before the strikes were carried out, President Trump changed his mind. He says he did this because he was concerned about civilian, civilian casualties. The president tweeted this morning, quote, we were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites. When I asked how many will die, 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. I am in no hurry, unquote. President Trump has since given a new and slightly different timeline of events in an interview with Chuck Todd. That 10 minutes is now 30, and it remains unclear if the jets were in the air. President Trump says they were not. The New York Times says they were. Moreover, the comments raise the question as to why President Trump did not know until that moment about the potential death toll. We have this story covered from the Pentagon to the White House. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Let's start there. Caitlin, why was it not until that moment that the president seemed to learn uh, about the potential casualties? Well, that's something really unclear. And so far, lawmakers have been expressing confusion about that all day, because typically when you're making a decision on this scale, such a grave decision, that's something that the president would be briefed on very early on by his national security officials. But instead, the president says that was a last minute question that he had, and that was the factor that changed the president's mind. But of course, Jake, we've been doing reporting here behind the scenes all day. And this is a president who was hesitant about ever carrying out this strike in the first place. I didn't think it was proportionate. Today, President Trump explaining his last-minute decision to call off his planned strike on Iran. Nothing is green-lighted until the very end because things okay. change. Telling NBC News he stopped the retaliatory attack in the 11th hour after being told 150 people would likely die. They came and they said, sir, we're ready to go. We'd like a decision. I said, I want to know something before you go. How many people will be killed? It's information the commander-in-chief would typically get when being presented with military options. I didn't like it. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was proportionate. But the president denied it was so last minute that planes were already in the air. No, but they would have been pretty soon. Uh, and things would have happened to a point where you wouldn't turn back or couldn't turn back. It's a decision that pits the president against his top advisors. Sources tell CNN Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton both favored striking Iran, while outside advisors reminded him of his promise to get the U.S. out of wars, not in them. In the end, Trump opted for restraint over retaliation, tweeting that sanctions are biting and more added last night. But what those sanctions will look like or when they will go into effect is still unclear. Some Republicans are against Trump's retreat. It'll send a message that the red line may not be so red. 
while unlikely Democrats are praising the move. I don't think the people should be jumping down the president's throat for wanting to uh, think this through and make sure that uh, neither side miscalculates uh, and we don't inadvertently end up in a war with Iran. Others said pulling back is a sign of the indecision in the West Wing. He should not be saying stuff like that publicly because it gives the impression of a level of indecision that I don't think is helpful to us. Now, Jake, in his tweet today, the president said that new sanctions were added against Iran last night, but that is not true. The Treasury Department hasn't announced any new sanctions against Iran. Today, in a speech, the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, did say that if Iran, that additional countermeasures will be imposed against Iran if they continue with activity that's related to money laundering or terrorist organization financing. But we asked the White House, why did the president make this claim about more sanctions being imposed if they have not? And so far, Jake, they have not gone back to us. All right, Caitlin Collins uh, at the White House. Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon. And Barbara, what are you hearing from your military sources about their reaction to President Trump's decision? Well, look, Jake, presidents often set a red line, do this, I'm going to take military action. And at the end of the day, many presidents find it very difficult to jump over to the other side of that red line. So at the Pentagon, they were ready to go. And then the call came that the strike was not going to happen. Today's uh, presidential statement that uh, he found it not to be a proportional strike because the estimate was 150 Iranians might get killed is pretty interesting because the military has to have strikes be signed off as being legally sufficient. And one of the things that has to happen for there to be a U.S. military strike anywhere in the world, there has to be proportional use of force. That is a very clear legal standard. So the president has his opinion that 150 Iranians was not uh, proportional force. But look, he is not going to have options in front of him from the Pentagon that are not legally sufficient. So it was sufficient. He decided against it. Now, where we are is the Pentagon continues to have ships and aircraft very much at the ready in the Middle East. They are always on a state of alert. And if the Iranians were to engage in another provocation, we could be right back here. The president still will have to decide what he wants to do, if anything, Jake. And Barbara, the president could still theoretically, even if the Iranians don't do anything new, launch a strike with with fewer or even no civilian casualties, one expects. Are any other plans being drawn up? Well, look, you know, it's the cliche, but true that the U.S. military always has plans. But one of the things that the Pentagon has constantly cautioned the State Department and the National Security Council about is that it's very difficult to estimate an Iranian reaction if the U.S. was to strike. How do you have a limited military strike option and and be somewhat sure that the Iranians are not going to take it and start engaging in a wider conflict? That is always a very significant worry. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thanks so much. Let's chew over this with our experts. And Jen Psaki, let me start with you. Uh, when you were at the Obama White House, Obama uh, famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, uh, said that the Bashar al-Assad in Syria using chemical weapons would be a red line. And then he did. And then President Trump, I mean, sorry, President Obama ultimately uh, did not take military action. He did not cross the red line, uh, so to speak. Um, are you surprised that President uh, Trump also felt a, a similar 
reluctance to take out, uh, to take military action that could cost people lives. Well, the scenarios are very different. Of course, yes. I mean, President Obama uh, had sat through meetings and meetings, hours and hours of meetings in the Situation Room, as had his national security team uh, leading up to that decision. And there were discussions uh, that I don't think took place in this case about what next, what happens after you strike. So I think uh, even those of us who are not supporters of President Trump, like myself, should certainly be relieved that he didn't take military action. And I think... Uh, uh, we don't need to hold him to, uh, you know, saying he would and then not doing it when not doing it is the right thing. Uh, or I think it's the right thing. And many national security experts think it's the right thing. In this case, my concern is that if you look at the national security team that's supporting him, that he's consulting with, it's like they're playing a game of battleship, um, like that little kid's game where you mm. play with plastic ships. Like they are proving their machismo and their masculinity by more aggressive language and more aggressive threats. That's not the way that we should be governing, and that's not the way that anybody should be advising the president. So I'm happy to see that he pulled the team back, but I'm still concerned about where it goes from here. Mike Shields, I have to say, I find it hard to believe that the, the first time the casualty number, potential casualty number, was presented to President Trump was at the end when he asked about it. Now, he might not have heard it. He might not have internalized it, as one uh, White House official suggested to Pamela Brown, that he, it took him a while to internalize it. But that's like one of the first things that would be presented, I would think. Well, it may, it may have been, but he may have gone back to it again. It may be something as he's deliberating over this and they're waiting for the final command for this, that he's saying, wait a minute, read this back to me again. What are the human casualties going to be? I know you said this is proportionate. In my opinion, as president, it's not proportionate. And so and he and he's the commander in chief and he has the ability to do that. And I appreciate Jen's comment saying this was the right thing to do. I mean, I'm waiting for all the Trump critics that think that he's chaotic and and, you know, sometimes question his mental capacities and all the things that they say about the president. Here he was as the commander in chief with a lot of things on the line and a lot of very serious decisions to make. And he made a decision that people are saying is the right decision. I think it's the most important thing for us to focus on. He is not trying to get into this conflict. He is trying to set some parameters and put the Iranian regime under sanctions and, and to have a different foreign policy with them without mm. going to war with them. And he just demonstrated that with this with this decision here. And so if something does happen further down the road, we're going to know he was reluctant to do it. And Mona, a senior Republican source, told CNN's Jamie Gangel, quote, our adversaries are far more likely to attack our interests if they think they won't have to pay a price for that. Uh, and that is obviously one of the things that President Trump is being told by uh, people in his national security team, Lindsey Graham, more hawkish people. Like, you have to do something or else the Iranians will think they can get away with it. And yet he did do something that a, that a Republican critic of the president's I know said, this is the most human thing I've ever seen President Trump do, Look, meaning it is a compliment. Yeah, sure. For people who worried, and there were many, that President Trump would be erratic or highly emotional in a situation like this and fire off missiles just to prove his masculinity, as the hint was, that didn't happen, and so that is reassuring. Um, on the other hand, there are other parts of this that are incredibly disturbing. The fact that there was no process. We don't have an acting Secretary of Defense. We don't even have an acting sec uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense. There is no acting Secretary of the Air Force. Um, the Pentagon should have been front and center in this. Instead, I think Shannon is still actually technically technically the acting, acting but he's on his way out. Um, yeah. And and the, um, the 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 locus was all about Trump. You know, this is what's Trump doing? What's he saying? How's he reacting? Instead of it being, it should have come from the Pentagon. Frankly, Pentagon should have been front and center, handling this, issuing statements about what uh, the United States was going to do. 
And, uh, and so instead you have this sense that's very unsettling for a lot of people, for our allies too, that the president is erratically sort of switching sides and, and making, you know, changing his mind suddenly. So we're told, um, uh, Jamal, that, that uh, Bolton, Pence, Pompeo, all of them were in favor of launching the strikes. Ultimately, the president went against it. Yeah, I think that we get in trouble when we start trying to think of Donald Trump making decisions the way most politicians would make decisions. And what it appears, what, what I wonder about, I don't know this, but what I wonder about is, if you look at the way he behaved with North Korea, if you look at the way he behaved with Mexico around tariffs, what Donald Trump likes to do is start a forest fire, threaten everyone's houses, and be the only guy around with the hoses to put out the fire. So you have to come to him if you want to save yourself. I kind of wonder if what he's been doing recently is getting around to the point where they would do something that would be provocative so that he could be the one to save that. We know that, or we, we've been told that he went to the Omanis to, tell, to ask them to go cut a deal or get a conversation started with the Iranians. And the Iranians said, no, thank you. Is it possible that the Iranians just called Trump's bluff and said, if you want to start a fight, let's start a fight? And Donald Trump pulled back. Interesting. Uh, everyone stick around. Why a U.S. military strike against Iran could lead to military conflicts with multiple players in the Middle East. Then, children sleeping on concrete floors, wearing dirty clothes, being forced to take care of toddlers. These are just some of the horrifying conditions some children are dealing with along the border. Stay with us. And we're back with the breaking news in the world lead. President Trump may be, quote, cocked and loaded, but if he fires on Iran, the situation could escalate and spread fast. Let's go to CNN's Tom Foreman. And Tom, the U.S. has its allies, but so does Iran, and Iran also has those proxies. Any strike, of course, could trigger widespread retaliation. Yeah, that's really the problem here. If U.S. forces struck Iran, they would be taking on a robust enemy with somewhere around a million troops guarding a country nearly twice the size of Texas. But the conflict could well expand beyond Iran's borders to several places where Iran has influence, agents, and allies igniting much of the region. Let's look at some of that. In Iraq, Shia militias backed by Iran could go after thousands of U.S. troops and American contractors still there. In Syria... Shia militias and Hezbollah, also supported by Iran and considered a terrorist group by the U.S., could turn on American outposts there. There are only a few hundred American troops left, but those numbers could make them particularly vulnerable. Beyond that, in Lebanon, same story, Hezbollah could very likely unleash rocket barrages against Israel, which is, of course, an important U.S. ally. Hamas could do the same thing from Gaza. The conflict in Yemen could be another flashpoint with Houthi rebels staging attacks on U.S. and Saudi forces in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And in Afghanistan, yes, there too, Iran has fighters who could turn on U.S. troops with renewed fury if the Iranian homeland were attacked. Beyond that, Iranian forces could try to shut down the Strait of Hormuz right here through which one-fifth of the world's petroleum supplies pass. This has been called by the U.S. government the single most important oil choke point in the world. And do not forget that Iran's missiles would easily have the range to hit U.S. military bases throughout this region. None of this has to happen if the U.S. strikes Iran. But, Jake, military and political analysts know all of it could. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. I want to bring in Democratic Congressman Elliot Engel. He's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, chairman Engel, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. My so pleasure. You were briefed on the situation with Iran yesterday. Did you, were you told about any plans for a strike? Have you heard more from the White House today? 
Well, yesterday I, I left the meeting with the president and, and, and other members of the House and Senate with the definite feeling that uh, we were going to somehow strike Iran. Um, I was very surprised when I heard the news to the contrary early this morning. Um, the president didn't go into details, but certainly gave uh, strong um, feelings that we were going to retaliate somehow. As you know, it seems rather unlikely that any military plan would be presented to the president without uh, a casualty assessment, you know, as one of the first two or three bullet points. And I'm being told by Pentagon sources that, yes, they did. Do you understand the idea about President Trump being told not towards the end or not understanding or asking about towards the end what the casualty assessment what was? Well, I don't know what the story was there, but it's certainly logical. Just take logic. Uh, this is the this would be the, one of the first questions, if not the first question, that the president of the United States would ask his people. So find, find it difficult to believe that he waited until the very end to do it. Now, uh, perhaps he had some uh, mixed feelings about it, and uh, that was plausible after the meeting we had. But I was shocked this morning when I heard that uh, he, had, he had done an about-face. Do you think he do you think he made a mistake by doing the about face? Do you think that he should have carried out the strike or, no. or what, what are your what's your feelings about his ultimate final decision? No, I, I think, look, I, I hope that perhaps this will lead to karma heads prevailing. Look, we don't want a confrontation with Iran. Um, I don't like the Iranian regime. I don't like what they did. Uh, I, I don't like what they continue to do. The, the, the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world. But I don't think that uh, a war with the, with Iran given what we know about what happened in Iraq and other places, is something that we should strive for. In fact, in fact, quite, quite the opposite. We, we should make sure that we work with our allies. By the way, we have our allies, France, the U.K., Germany. We need to work with them because uh, that will strengthen our hand. Do you have any concerns that the president uh, making this about face, pulling back from the strike, will embolden Iran at all? It's hard to say, Jake, because I don't really know what went on behind the scenes once the president obviously made a decision to, to not do it. I don't know. I mean, I, I would hope we could use this as an opportunity uh, to try to calm the situation. And by the way, as you know, uh, presidents have been using the um, 2001 AUMF. The authorization for use of military force right. against Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. And they've used it as a catch-all for everything. We in the Foreign Affairs Committee reject that in terms of using it for, for the situation now. You think the president needs to come to Congress to get the authority to strike Iran oh, if he wants to? Absolutely. I think the president needs to come to Congress if you're going to war with Iran. I mean, individual strike, uh, we don't want to tie the president's hands. But in terms of going to war, uh, we're a co-equal branch of government. It's very important that, uh, that Congress have a say in it. You know, we have not had a, a declared war where, where, where Congress has declared war since World War II. Uh, we, we dragged into war in, in Iraq. We dragged into other wars. And each president thinks that, that he can do things with impunity. Uh, I don't want to see that. The Foreign Affairs Committee members don't want to see that. And we want to make sure that uh, they're not using any kind of excuse to drag us into war with the 2001 AUMF, which is certainly irrelevant when it comes to this situation with Iran. But you're right. Uh, Presidents Bush and Obama before Trump used it to basically yes. do whatever they wanted to do. Chairman Engel uh, of the House Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Joe Biden's controversial remarks about working with segregationist senators could all come to a head tonight. That's next. 
Our 2020 lead now, the hottest ticket in town for a Friday night, if you're a 2020 Democratic candidate, is Congressman Jim Clyburn's, quote, world-famous fish fry in Columbia, South Carolina. It's also a critical place to court African-American voters who make up 60 percent of the Democratic electorate in the Palmetto State. Almost every candidate will be there, including former Vice President Joe Biden. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, tonight will be the first time we'll see the frontrunner at an event that isn't a fundraiser ever since his comments about working with segregationist senators in the 1970s erupted in controversy. Joe Biden and his Democratic rivals are descending on South Carolina this weekend, coming face to face after clashing from afar over one of the most divisive eras in the nation's history. Leading the way in the 2020 race, the former vice president is unfazed by his comments that touched off a firestorm this week as he held up his work with segregationist senators as an example of a forgotten civility in politics. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career, period. Black leaders and voters have rallied to his defense, creating an air of tension as Biden is poised to cross paths here with Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and others who have either criticized him or called for an apology. James Clyburn, the highest-ranking African-American in Congress, not only defended Biden, but said he also worked with segregationists, like longtime South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond. I think it's a little bit ludicrous to uh, blame someone for working uh, with people you don't, dis- you don't agree with. Do you think he was celebrating a racist? No, come on. When you uh, celebrate your ability uh, to work uh, with a racist, you're celebrating the racist? The controversy is an awkward backdrop to the state Democratic convention, which is attracting 21 presidential candidates to South Carolina, where black voters make up about 60 percent of the Democratic primary electorate. Is it Joe Biden's to lose? Yes, absolutely. And he can't lose it. Uh, We've had a lot of front runners. Uh, I often think about President Howard Dean. (laughs) How does that sound to you? The respect for Biden runs deep. But voters like Sue Taylor are looking for a new direction. Right now, Elizabeth Warren looks good to me. I think she's a dynamic speaker. She's she certainly credentialed. She's got a history of performance. Bernice Scott said Hillary Clinton's loss still stings. And she sees an important piece of unfinished business in 2020, sending a woman to the White House. Her choice this time? Harris. So it's time. It's time. She's intelligent. She just happened to be black and a female. And that's a plus. So voters here in the first and the South primary, Jake, will get a firsthand look at all of these Democratic candidates. Right now, Joe Biden is meeting with African-American leaders here, right here in in Columbia. He is trying to hold a one-on-one discussion with them. Jake, one goal is paramount for him, trying to keep his frontrunners hold on this race. Of course, he knows frontrunners can often be fleeting. But one thing became clear this week, Jake, so many people came to his defense, at least among the party's establishment. The question now is what rank and file voters have to say. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's chew over all this. What does Joe Biden need to do and what do his opponents need to do at the fish ride tonight? Joe Biden needs to, well, there's a short-term problem, which is that Joe Biden needs to get past this problem. I think he needs to explain it more when he gets to the fish fry, what it really meant, 
why it is he decided to leap over all the relationships he had in the 2000s, 1990s, 1980s, <laughs> and go back to the relationships he had in the 1970s. With Democrats, with segregationist Democrats. Yeah. I mean, that's my, not bipartisan. Well, as my dad said the other day, he said, you know, uh, uh, the, the coziness between the establishment Democrats and the Southern segregationists was the very thing that civil rights activists were organizing against in the 60s and early 70s. So uh, uh, Biden saying this does not make people of his generation feel any better, at least didn't make him feel any better. So he's got to do that in the short term. In the longer term, we, ha- we have to see from Joe Biden that he can, he can navigate and surf the cross currents of the modern Democratic Party. And we haven't really seen that yet, starting with the Lucy Flores situation, going to the Hyde Amendment. And now we're at this point where we're talking about, uh, we're talking about his relationship mm-hmm. with Eastland. Um, he's just got to do better to show that he can navigate the policy of the, of this, the politics of the current moment if he wants to represent the entire Democratic Party. And Jen Psaki, it's also risky for the people taking on Joe Biden at the fish fry, given the support for him among establishment individuals, even if they're African-American, like uh, Jim Clyburn, as we just heard. Uh, and also, Democrats want Democrats to get along. Right. They're uncomfortable with the fighting sometimes. I think that's true. But, you know, I don't think that Senator Cory Booker and Joe Biden are going to have fisticuffs at the fish fry. I, they're both. Although pretty, I'd buy tickets for that. Yeah, <laughs> I would. But they're both uh, pretty cordial guys. Um, so I expect that they'll have a greeting. Uh, they'll embrace and, you know, engage with one another. And certainly people will be watching for that. Uh, but, you know, this is a case where just to build on what you were saying, uh, You know, Joe Biden is running like he is the front runner. He's the best person to beat Donald Trump. Now, the polls are supporting that. But if you hear a lot of people defend him, I think part of that is because they look at the alternative of Donald Trump and they're like, "Okay, we can take all this crap he's saying because we still think he's the best guy to beat Donald Trump. Now, we'll see if that still holds after the debates as people are getting to know the other candidates. We don't know that yet. Um, But right now, that is saving him, I think, a fair amount because people are looking the other way, even when he's making out of touch and kind of out of sync comments because they they are so desperate to beat Donald Trump. This is going to keep happening. This is who Joe Biden is. I mean, guys, this is why he won't be the nominee. I'm telling you, this is going to keep happening if you go back through his massively long, decades-long career, which is another part of what we're talking about here is how far back he's going, because that's how long he's been in office, how many times he's run for president lost. This is what he does. This is He's Bidening. That's what he's doing right now. It's not really about him him having relationships with these old segregationists. Everybody in politics has to talk to people they don't like. The question is, did you feel like it was an onerous thing you had to get through for the greater good, or is it something you look back at with fondness? And, and it's because of their, agree- their work together on busing, which is a controversial issue. That- Biden against busing. Against busing, I'm sorry. Yeah. Against <laughs> busing, uh, which is a very controversial issue that people who are concerned about his comments are concerned about that policy so- as well. All of I agree with everything that has been said at this table. I would just add that, you know, we're talking about how African-Americans are 61 percent of the electorate in South Carolina. Right now, 52 percent of them are in Biden's column. Right. It's pretty remarkable. Amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. Amazing head start. Uh, But look, he does. There is, as Jake was saying, there is a generational aspect to Mm -hmm. this. He does not see. The, the way the woke young people respond to some of the things that he says. He's been saying them again and again for his entire career, uh, sometimes to his sorrow. Um, at the same time, if the Democrats turn on him and tear him apart, 
they could be sabotaging well, their best shot, their best shot at beating Donald Trump. They don't, they don't need to turn on him yet. He's doing it to himself. And it's way too early in a multi-candidate primary. At Cory first, Booker you don't attack. We haven't Talk even heard about him yet. December ahead who the of the best candidate is. We literally yeah. have not heard yeah. one contested And December ahead of the Iowa caucuses, there will be attacks. People will be running negative ads against each other. And he's going to have the, the oppo book on Joe Biden for this stuff is so big. He's going to succumb to it eventually. You, know, could, you can't. You know what you remind me of? There was somebody on Twitter. Uh, a young progressive tweeted me, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to mess up what he said exactly, but it was something along the lines of, I've been thinking about how do we get rid of Biden as a young progressive, and then I realized we just need to let him campaign. <laughs> yeah. And his staff knows that, well, too, which and, is why they're trying to keep him out of stuff, because they know he's going to screw it as up. As the guy who can win is that when, you, when there's nothing else, when it's not your policy proposals or anything else, then the first time you stumble or have a senior moment or do something like this, the bottom starts to the air comes out of the I think that's true, but I also think, it's a, probably have made this point, you know, the process works, um, yeah. and we haven't even seen them really campaigning. We haven't right. seen them on the stage together. I have affection for Joe Biden, no question, yeah. as I've said on this show before. Yeah. But, you know, we haven't really, we don't know a lot enough about the other candidates. And the people who decide who's most electable are the American public, not yeah. us sitting here. And, uh, and, and one of the things that's interesting to your point is, Hillary Clinton didn't go through this in her primary, mm-hmm. really. She had Bernie a little bit poking, mm-hmm. but people were very uh, convinced that she was going to be the nominee. And so anytime Bernie tried to go at her, he got slapped by the party. Mm-hmm. But this is good for a candidate because if he gets through it, then he'll be tougher and the bad yeah. stuff will be behind him. I just want to about the African-American vote because it, the, the enthusiasm of African-Americans is key to Democrats. And where's, where's Barack Obama, and, by the way, in all this? I mean, well, here is his yeah. vice president having who should have the best bona fides. He was the yeah. vice president, the first African-American president in history. He's dealing with multiple race problems. We don't I'll hear his you, voice I anywhere. In, I was in Charleston uh, last week. And I will tell you, uh, there are a lot of people who really like Joe Biden. I really like Joe Biden. There are a lot of people raising a lot of questions about Joe Biden and whether or not he's going to really be able to navigate this moment. All right. That was great. Thank you, everyone. Why are state troopers in one state on the hunt for Republican lawmakers? That's next. In our national lead now, Republican lawmakers in Oregon are apparently so opposed to legislation to combat climate change that they have literally fled the state. The Democratic governor there has now ordered state troopers to go round up these Republican legislators. But, as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports, those lawmakers argue they're just doing their job. I am asking that the highest law enforcement branch in the state of Oregon go out and find my fellow legislators. Politics have gotten so ugly in Oregon, the Democratic governor has now ordered troopers to track down Republican state lawmakers. They are rogue. Uh, They need to get back. They need to do their jobs. It all came to a head Wednesday with a warning from the governor saying she'd contacted state police after Republican senators said they would walk out of the legislature to block a vote on a landmark climate bill aimed at dramatically lowering greenhouse gas emissions. If any of you are offended, that's fine. One of those senators responded to the governor's warning with a threat of his own. This is what I told the superintendent. Send bachelors and come heavily armed. I'm not going to be a political prisoner in the state of Oregon. It's just that simple. Thursday, all 11 Republicans made good on the promise to walk out, attacking the Senate president before leaving. We're at the 11th hour. If you don't think these boots are for walking, you're flat wrong, Mr. President. 
and you send the state police to get me, hell's coming to visit you personally. The governor followed through as well in an extraordinary move last night. She ordered the state police to bring them back to work. It is an extraordinary move. Would you agree? Uh, Absolutely. Um, But I would also argue that the challenges that we face as a state and a nation around tackling climate change also require extraordinary circumstances. The wife of one of the Republican senators told CNN the senators went out of state to Idaho. This is an embarrassment to the state of Oregon. The underlying reason for the standoff? Democrats have a supermajority, which means they can pass legislation without a vote from a single Republican. But in order to do any of the people's business, they need at least two Republican senators to be in attendance for a quorum. State police say they will politely ask senators to return and accompany them if need be. But if they can't find two senators to agree, they would need permission from their superintendent to use handcuffs. Now, uh, the governor is very clear that if they cannot get those two Republican senators to come in and create a quorum, that she will have to call a special session because this legislative session ends on June 30th. Jake? I thought things were bad in Washington. Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Appreciate (laughs) it. I know it. No access to soap, toddlers in soiled onesies, teenagers taking care of babies, all coming to a head in a dramatic court hearing. That's next. Time now for our buried lead. These are stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Imagine being eight years old, being torn away from your family, and then being handed a toddler and told, take care of this child. Soothe him, even though you don't have a bed to put him to sleep. Bathe him, even though there isn't enough soap to go around. As first reported by the Associated Press, lawyers say that's exactly what's going on right now at a migrant detention facility in El Paso, Texas. And as CNN's Nick Valencia reports for us, conditions could get even worse. I find that inconceivable that the government would say that that is safe and sanitary. A contentious court hearing on the awful conditions in which some child migrants are being held. Conditions described by one inspector who this week visited this Texas Border Patrol station as unconscionable. Calling it a pervasive health crisis where toddlers are, quote, left to fend for themselves. One walking around only in a diaper, another in a filthy onesie. Teenagers not faring any better. Older kids are taking care of the babies, an inspector tells CNN, adding there doesn't appear to be child care there. It just makes me, my heart hurt uh, to think about what kind of lasting damage uh, these experiences might have for these kids. But before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday, a Justice Department lawyer was put on the spot about those conditions. It's within everybody's common understanding that, you know, if you don't have a toothbrush, if you don't have soap, if you don't have a blanket... It's not safe and sanitary. Wouldn't everybody agree to that? Do you agree to that? Well, I I think it's, I think those are, there's fair reason to find that those things may be part of safe and sanitary. No, maybe are a part. Responding to the allegations in these Border Patrol facilities, a Customs and Border Protection official tells me it's Congress who must act to approve $4.5 billion in emergency funding. It's that, they say, Jake. That, is be, that will be part of the solution. All right, Nick Valencia, thanks so much. And obviously, uh, the uh, DHS has been pushing. We need more money to help these help in these facilities. But that's not a good look, that government lawyer uh, arguing that. No, you don't. Uh, look, everyone can have their views about how to solve the immigration crisis. But to be purposefully cruel 
and take it out on the kids um, is, as you say, an unbelievably callous and, and cruel um, posture. On the other hand, I just have to add that the Democrats have not proposed a solution. The Democrats have been content to you know, rail against what the Trump administration is doing, and fine, but they never say what they would do. Uh, how do you handle this? I mean, there are waves and waves of families and people coming who we cannot take in, or, or at least under current law, we cannot. Um, is, is it that we should open the border completely and everybody should come? Or how do they propose that we handle this? And Jen Psaki, we've, uh, CNN has learned from a senior immigration official that ICE is going to begin arresting and deporting families with court-ordered removals in 10 cities uh, starting Sunday, uh, following through on the president's tweet from earlier this week. I mean, look, I have a one and a three-year-old, and it's just incredibly difficult to read these stories and hear these stories about children being ripped out of their homes, parents being ripped out of their homes. And I don't know how anyone wouldn't have a human reaction like that, including people who are working in this administration. I think this situation has been created by the decision to separate families. Yes, the Obama administration policy was not perfect either, but the policy was not to separate families. So we're in this situation now because of the Trump administration. Uh, I think that there has to be more that can be done. I don't think blaming it on the Democrats is really fair. They wouldn't have separated the families to begin with. But find the money, get the money, do something to deal with this. Because I don't know how that woman who is the lawyer, who is that person? Mm -hmm. And who are these people who are watching this and not doing anything? It's like absolutely outrageous. I can't read any more about this. It's just, I can't even talk anymore because it can make me upset. But just... CNN reported that the court case they were arguing was actually started under the Obama administration and the current administration lawyers are now arguing against it in the same position the Obama administration was, just to be clear on that. But we so, didn't separate children from no, their but families. Look, right. There's a huge difference there. I'm sorry. I, I understand that. Look, we have to be better as Americans and our government. We have to yes. be better. However, let's look at the bigger picture. Hundreds of thousands of poor people are coming from Central America and flooding our borders. Most of the children are being taken care of. Most of the families are being taken care of. The media coverage is always going to go find the two or three heartbreaking things which have to be made better and not look at the bigger picture. And what's frustrating as a conservative is then we start to ignore the larger, the larger picture here. We should have a policy. We should be able to come together and have a policy that doesn't. Our current immigration policy is yelling fire in a crowded theater and telling people it's okay to come and flood America when it's not. They're in danger. They're putting children in they danger. They're putting our border security in danger. You think that's and it is, it is a terrible overall situation, and we shouldn't just yeah. focus on this. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this panel. Uh, while the world is focused on Iran, North Korea's Kim Jong-un is heading to a very important meeting. Stay with us. Be sure to tune in to CNN's State of the Union this Sunday morning. We're talking to House Intelligence Committee Chairman Congressman Adam Schiff and Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. It's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern this Sunday. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Have a wonderful weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.